Welcome back to the Why We Fight 1943 podcast, designed as a companion to the overall Why We Fight series. I'm Sasha, and I run the Mother of Tanks account on Twitter. Today I'm joined by Bill Nance, an associate professor at the Department of Military History at CGSC and a retired lieutenant colonel. And Bill is going to talk with us about the what happens after Kasserine Pass. Welcome to the Why We Fight 1943 podcast, Bill. Thank you for having me, Sasha. So what's cool about what I study is World War II, everyone thinks they know World War II, but then when you get into it, it's all the headliners. And in North Africa, it's Operation Torch, and all of a sudden we're in Tunisia. And then there's Kasserine Pass, and that's bad. And uh, Dr. Calhoun uh, the other day kind of mentioned that, hey, it's not maybe, maybe not as bad as we think it is. And then we won, and... You know, if you watch the movie Patton, he fights a really uh, stilted battle against the Germans using M60 tanks, if you've seen the movie. <laughs> and then uh, and then all of a sudden the war's over, or that, that campaign's over, and we're in Sicily. And I'm like, well, the Battle of Castrian Pass, depending on what part you're talking about, happened right around Valentine's Day. But the actual campaign didn't end until the middle of May. Uh, around the 13th of May. So what's happening in the rest of February, March, April, and part of May? That's a lot of fighting that we just don't talk about. And other research that I have done is uh, Northwest Europe's much the same way. People all know D-Day, and then it's hard, and then we break out, and then we drive across France, and we run out of gas, and on the next thing we know, it's December with Battle of the Bulge, and then we Patton relieves Bastogne, and then the next thing we know, the war's over. People don't talk a lot about some of the detail work that goes into that. So that's where I like to get uh, kind of mix it up a little bit, is kind of get into those in-between spaces and talk about the fighting that doesn't make the headlines a lot of the time. And that's that's what I enjoy doing. So let's talk about Kasserine, or after Kasserine, right? Yeah. So Kasserine Pass ends, and as Dr. Calhoun mentioned the other day, it started out bad and it got better, right? Uh, so the Ameri- we lo- we had our infantry regiment surrounded. We had several units badly beaten. You had the 1st Armored Division not exactly cover itself in glory to start. And then we kind of got our act together and started doing better. So that fight's over. So we have to look at what else is going on in Tunisia during this time frame. You want to think of uh, Tunisia as a big L, Right. So you've got uh, to the west in the mountains is the British First Army, the American Second Corps, and the French 19th Corps, which sort of works for the British First Army, but not really because the French are still figuring out whose side they're on in terms of this, and they don't want to necessarily take direction from the Brits. So they there's kind of this weird command connection there where they go back up to their political leaders and then it comes back down. And the Americans are kind of in that category here with the second core. And we're kind of scattered all over the place because when we landed in uh, Algeria and Morocco, we'd gotten ashore, there'd been some fighting and we can talk, and that's a topic for another day perhaps. And then we'd raced across Northwest Africa as quickly as we could, trying to get to the ports before the Germans could get there. Well, we failed. Uh, Not for lack of trying, but physics is a real pain, right? Uh, Tanks only go so far before you run out of gas, and soldiers can only walk so far, and mountains get in the way, bad roads. It just is. So we 
kind of, so everyone's kind of scattered and disjointed and jumbled. And that's kind of where uh, we kind of land. And that's, and we spend the winter there because we land in November of 42. And the Germans don't really hit us until February of 43. So we spent the winter, everyone's kind of disjointed and jumbled. A lot of the American divisions, part of the problem in Kashmir Pass is that our divisions aren't fighting as divisions. There, there's a regiment here, there's a regiment there, there's combat command of the armored division there. And so that's all disjointed and jumbled, and we're still trying to get our act together there. And you've got Montgomery with the 8th Army. He won at El Alamein, also in November of 42. And he has chased Rommel across uh, Libya and is now coming up and uh, coming into southern Tunisia, which is kind of the base of the L right there. But it's not a connected L. You've got British First Army and the American Second Corps, and they're really separate organisms there. There's a big command climate problem of Americans don't want to be under the Brits. We're short under the Brits because we just have a corps there and the Brits have a field army headquarters. There's a lot of command issues there. And you've got the Eighth Army coming up from the south and they're not connected there. There's a gap right where the base of the L should be or the, the corner of the L. And Rommel comes in and he's pulled into the Marath line, which is in the southern part of Tunisia. And the Germans are under von Arnhem and the rest of uh, Supreme Commando there. It's actually Italian headquarters, but the Germans are under Italian command, except when they don't want to be. And then they just do their own thing, as is pretty standard for how the Germans uh, operate in North Africa, which is, yes, Italians, this is your theater and they're your soldiers, but we're going to do what we want to do anyways. So there's basically two different battles going on. And Castrian Pass happens and it looks bad. To the point where the uh, the Brits are very, very concerned about the fighting qualities of the American army. There is a not-so-polite joke that the Brits will say that they refer to the Americans as our Italians. Which is, uh, which is a very negative connotation. And, of course, the Italian army, which is unfair because the Italian army actually does fight very well when it's placed in the right situations. So, but, yeah, it it's basically a... Um, a very bad, a kind of slur on the Americans and the Italians at the same time. So the Brits are very concerned about the American Second Corps, and Montgomery has finally hit the Marath line, and he is now, has to kind of rest and recoup. So that's kind of where we're at post-Kasserine. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's more fighting going on than just Kasserine Pass. The Germans are also fighting the British Fifth Corps up in kind of the northern part of Tunisia, closer to the coast. So we, uh, we, the Americans, tend to look at, you know, what happened with just the Americans. There's other fighting going on. And that's what we have to remember is, is that we have one core and there's just in North, just in Tunisia, Western Tunisia, there's three corps fighting. There's the fifth corps, the French 19th corps and the U.S. two corps, which and then we'll add in the British 9th corps eventually as this fighting progresses. And then Montgomery's coming uh, from the south with three additional corps. So we're one of about six corps fighting here. One, and you can argue combat power and what that looks like, but we're one part of that pie. Mm-hmm. So this is all, when they arrive here, we'd stood up what was called the 18th Army Group, which commanded all of the allied forces in Tunisia. And Montgomery kind of slots into this. Uh, so you've got the Eighth Arm, British Eighth Army and British First Army. And the British First Army really has one British Corps and then the French and then the Americans. Sort of working with them, sort of working for them. As long as they're not working against them. 
you could argue that, right? Uh, I mean, this is a this is where the this is where the alliance is truly born. Um, one thing I think Rick Atkinson actually does a good job kind of highlighting this. This is really where you see the it's kind of the crucible of the uh, Anglo-American alliance and the French as well. Put in a third one, it doesn't work quite as well. But uh, but this is where the, the the crucible of the Western Allies really come to being, which is we talked about it, we had conferences, but now we're actually having to work together and fight. And these these early battles, we don't really cover ourselves in glory. No one's really working with each other. People don't really like each other. There's a lot of personality conflicts. All of this is going on. So let's kind of take this in turn. Right. So you've got two separate campaigns going on and they're only loosely connected until Alexander, who's the commander of uh, the 18th Army Group, British officer, decides to take, uh, you know, kind of starts to assert a little bit more authority. So the very first thing that ends up happening is that Eisenhower, who's the theater commander. Mm-hmm. Now, he has a very loosely defined relationship because. Alexander's handling the ground forces, and there's an Air Force guy handling Air Force stuff, and there's Navy handling Navy stuff, and Eisenhower is sort of in charge, but everyone else has their own little fiefdom that he has to then work with independently. And Eisenhower is trying to figure out what's going on here. He realizes that he can't trust Friedendahl. He likes Friedendahl. Friedendahl's uh, got a good relationship with Alexander, the Army Group commander. It's good to have. But he says Friedendahl can't manage troops very well. There's a great line in here, um, and let me find it here really quick, where he says, basically, I've developed grave doubts about Friedendahl and his future role. I'm having a final conference with Alexander this evening and tomorrow. He's a good fighter, energetic and self-confident. I've encouraged him to the limit of the fullest expressions of confidence in his work. His difficulty is in handling personnel in which uh, field he is in constant trouble. I'm not sure he's big enough to command an independent sector directly under Alexander. That's a long way around of saying Eisenhower thinks he's a good officer, but he's out of his depth. He can't build a team. I was actually, um, I was reading the CSI battle book on C.D. Bouzid mm-hmm. yesterday. And one of the things that I noted was that they point out that uh, Friedendahl's personality was part of the problem and how he didn't get along with certain people. And he would, I mean, look at what he did with his headquarters and stuff like that. I mean, he was not really making some great decisions. Right. And and uh, this is interesting, right? Because somebody can look good on paper. They can even soldier well in the in training. But when you put them into a combat situation, they don't have that certain je ne sais quoi, right? You know, there, there's, something, yeah. there's something there, right? And that's something that Friedendahl lacked. And Eisenhower realized that, hey, look, this guy's... Friedendahl was the first... American Corps commander committed to the Atlantic Theater of Operations. And I have to throw Mediterranean and Northwest Europe into this category. So he is Marshall's first pick to command a corps in combat. Think about that one for a minute. So George C. Marshall, you know, that a lot of people hang on to, he's Marshall's really first pick. Now you've got Patton commanding the first Armored Corps in Morocco. So you could say Patton's also a first pick. But Patton's not the guy that gets sent forward to fight in Tunisia. He's doing military government stuff and other things in Morocco, which I'm not quite sure Pat was really great for, but whatever. <laughs> um, and then uh, and Friedendahl sent forward. So Eisenhower realizes that he's the wrong man for the job and he brings Patton. And Patton really has to do a bunch of things. And that, this is actually one of the things the movie Patton actually gets very, very right, is he comes in and he has to reestablish order and discipline. Mm-hmm. Because although Mark Calhoun did a great job of showing that, hey, look, they did a good job and they did well, 
it's not necessarily they don't feel it if that makes sense the it's like okay we eventually got there but wow we kind of sucked and that was bad and there is a feeling across the core and across the army that the americans didn't do well so even though they had in some ways they didn't feel it right you know it's like one of those when you when you study really hard for a test and you kind of get and you get like an 85 and you're like well and so you can sit there and like hey you did, you did well but you don't feel it, right? You wanted, you wanted that A. They need that professionalism so they have more confidence. Exactly. So Patton, is, so Patton has to come in and basically reestablish that feeling with the unit to kind of get them into believing in themselves and fighting. And Patton is one of those people that, say what you like about him, he is good at that. I love this part of the movie. All officers will wear neckties in combat. Where your um the leggings that they have, and you know, and why aren't you shaved? And breakfast is going to be at these times. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, and it's these it's these small things of getting people disciplined and getting people to think of themselves as soldiers. Because bear in mind, this is an American army that two years prior to this point, most of the soldiers in Tunisia were either just in the army or not in the army. Right. He's got to figure out how to get these people fighting. And the Germans are, you know, you say what you want about the Germans. I am not a huge believer in the myth of, you know, the Germans being these superhuman, you know, so, uh, inf infantry soldiers, but they'd been doing it for a minute. And they'd, uh, and that really kind of shows in just like the basic soldier tasks. So Patton's trying to get them into this role as well. So he's got that piece what's going on, but they're also shifting around the command structure, right? So Second Corps had been sort of working for First British Army up until this point. Very kind of chaotic command structure. At this point, Eisenhower talks to Alexander and they move Second Corps as a direct reporting organization to 18th Army Group. What that does is that kind of gets them out from underneath Anderson, who wasn't really impressed with uh with the Americans and Alexander was a little bit more going to be a little bit more tolerant ordinarily a corps would work for a field army but in this particular case they needed to kind of break that relationship because it was a toxic one yeah and then the, that also allows the Americans to kind of own their own sector because I remember the American public is watching this very very closely this is the oh, you've got some stuff going on in the Pacific We've got Guadalcanal going on. You've got some naval campaigns going on. But mostly, in terms of large-scale commitment of U.S. ground forces, this is the only show in town. The American public is following this very, very closely. They want to see their boys do well. And so we want to, the Americans to kind of be highlighted a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So Eisenhower kind of pulls them out and makes them their own separate thing. The other thing they do is, and this is... I'm an Air Force brat, which is interesting. So I, uh, I got uh, this highlighted me actually at a very young age, is we also shifted how we do our air power. Before, the air power would be in a dome over the soldiers. And you could look up and you'd see uh, the, your, your planes flying overhead and you were thought, okay, great, I'm there. The problem is that's a very inefficient way to use air power. Mm -hmm. So what, the, uh, what Eisenhower did is he pulled all the Air Forces out and said, okay, what you're going to now do is you are going to be used as an operational force. You're going to fly across the front. You're going to go hit the enemy air bases. And I don't want you just hanging out not doing anything over U.S. soldiers because it makes them feel good, but really there's nothing else for them to do. Go be useful. So go hit enemy behind the lines. Go hit their air bases. Go hunt down enemy air raids, all that kind of stuff. 
And this is our current doctrine today. Now, this, of course, causes problems in the short term because this is still what we call contested air. Mm -hmm. The Germans still have a significant amount of air power present. So what this new approach does is that will actually help us gain air superiority, but it is still a kind of a shuck and jive kind of fight right now. So when Patton's griping that he's not getting air power and air support, he's got some legitimate complaints because there are Germans that are slipping through. This is not an area of continuous radar coverage. This is not a case where you can spot every raid coming in. So the Germans are getting their licks in on the air power. And American ground soldiers are rightfully sitting there going, where's our airplanes? And like, well, they're not, you can't see them, but they're doing good. And it's going to take some time to get that into effect. But that's a massive change because what it, what it eventually does is gets us air superiority and then air supremacy. Mm -hmm. And this is what's going, and this is the kind of the shift in mode that we do there. Now, there are some problems that we have to work out. When you do want close air support, how do you arrange that? Do you give every corps its own couple squadrons? Well, that's not a really good approach. What we'll end up with Northwest Europe, when we get there, is that every field army will have a tactical air command working for it. And that's because we have enough planes to do that by that point. We don't have to husband our resources as closely by the time we get hit 1944, 1945. Mm -hmm. But what that allows them to do then is now it allows them, that allows that field army to then commit airplanes into that effect. In Tunisia, we're not there yet. So that's going to take some time. All right. So all this goes on. And then Rommel's last battle, which is not El Guitar, um, is actually the Battle of Medellin. And that is the 6th of March. And he is going to launch a spoiling attack against the Brits down around the, around the Marath line to do bad things to the Brits and try and basically kind of knock them off their game and prevent them from uh, attacking him. The British 8th Army is well dug in. These guys are salty seasoned vets. They've been doing this for a minute. They're dug in with well-defense uh, positions, and Rommel's last attack in North Africa is a bloody disaster. They lose 41 tanks. Germans take 61 killed, 388 wounded. Italians take 33 killed, 122 wounded. And the Brits take substantially less than that. And Rommel's last attack is defeated. So now we're at the case of, okay, the, the Germans are kind of stopped. And oh, by the way, you can put this in the same vein as the Kasserine Pass attack, as the, the Germans are trying to push the Allies back out as far as they can. So now we're going to go on to the offensive. The question is, is how? And this is where 18th Army Group comes into play. Montgomery is going to, uh, the first effort is going to come from the south. Montgomery's got the, he's got the best soldiers really in the, in, the, in the fight. He's got the most experienced soldiers. So he's going to make the main effort against Rommel in the south. And the idea being is to kind of close that L so that you can kind of connect the base of the L with the stem of the L, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're going to try and do. Well, the Germans have some armor reserves, 10th Panzer being one of them, the one that fought us, uh, that will fight at El Guitar and a couple other places. And the Marathon is a very, very well-defended position. So Montgomery is uh, kind of slamming his head into this position. And he comes to Alexander and says, Alexander, I need some help. So this is where the U.S. Second Corps starts its attack. Uh, if you're watching the movie Patton, this is the part where they're saying, Rommel's going to hit us at El Guitar. Well, there's a reason for that. And it wasn't Rommel, but we didn't necessarily know that at that particular moment in time. But the U.S. Second Corps, which is kind of the southern end of the stem of the L, so to speak, they're going to attack towards... Uh, if you've got a map in front of you, Gafsa, McNassi, and El Guitar. Those are uh, some regions there. And the idea being is they're going to push against the side of the Germans. And 
Alexander doesn't want them to push all the way to the coast. First off, he doesn't think we can do it. And second off, he doesn't really need us to. What he wants us to do is present that threat that will push to the coast, and that will pull German reserves up away from Montgomery and into fighting the Americans, which will make Montgomery's job easier. And that's what we're doing in, in that fighting right there. And this is mid-March time frame. The Battle of Medellin, Rommel's last battle, 6th to 7th March. Montgomery starts his attack against the Marathon on the 16th of March. And he's stopped. And then what he does is he does a flanking attack to get around the Marathon. And it's this long maneuver with the New Zealand Corps, which is, you know, a shout out to the Kiwis. And <laughs> the U.S. Second Corps is attacking during this time frame because if the it's this long, dangerous move, and if the Germans catch them in the open with a Panzer division, it's going to be bad. Yeah. So the U.S. Second Corps is attacking during this time frame. This is 22nd to the 27th of March. So this is kind of late March. This bloody, fierce fighting is going on in southern Tunisia. And the U.S. part of this is, pick the doctrinal term, but we're a shaping operation at this point. The decisive operation, which I think our doctrine has changed and we don't use these terms anymore, but I'm old. The decisive operation is down in the south, and that is Montgomery driving north. And he's the decisive operation one because he's Montgomery, too. He's really got the best field army in the theater. So he's driving north. We're a shaping operation, pulling reserves away from him to allow that to happen. And we do pretty well to the point where the Germans pull the 10th Panzer up and hit us at El Guitar. And... As opposed to the movie where it looks like a strictly defensive operation, it's actually us in the attack. And the Battle of El Guitar is really kind of a one-on-one -on -one fight between the 1st Infantry, reinforced, and the 10th Panzer. And it is a give-and-take fight. The 10th Panzer pushes in the 1st Infantry's uh, outposts. They surround a couple uh, smaller units. 1st Infantry counterattacks, and it is a give-and-take battle. The upshot of this, by the 23rd of March, is the 1st Infantry stops the 10th Panzer. And this is kind of that moment of, we didn't fold. We didn't do this. So you see, again, just like Dr. Calhoun mentioned a couple days ago, that the U.S. military is actually better than we give ourselves credit for. And in a one-on-one -on -one fight, Infantry Division versus Panzer Division, our soldiers give as good as they get and push back against one of Rommel's elite units. And that's a pretty big deal for us. And then we bring in the 1st Infantry and the 9th Infantry and parts of the 1st Armored Division to keep pushing. Because the idea is to keep the pressure on. And what you see over this time frame is, is that the Brits have this great operation called Pugilus Gallop. <laughs> I love these operation names at the time frame. And uh, that is the attack against the Marath line. And that doesn't work. So it goes to Operation, I think it's Supercharged 2, which is basically... He's hearkening back to his days uh, at El Alamein, mm -hmm. Operation Supercharge, which helped break the line there. And he's basically using the same idea there. And we pushed him back to what was called the CHOP position, which is uh, another defensive position. And in conjunction with the American pressure on the western flank and the British forces attacking and fighting their way through, we kind of connect the dots finally. And that's a big... And then the, the Germans withdraw up in northwest Tunisia. So again, this is characterized by harsh bloody fighting. We're having to cross wadis, you know, dry riverbeds into, into fixed defenses. And that's the Brits mainly doing that. The Brits and the New Zealanders, I should say. And the Americans are in this very fierce positional fighting going against very tall, steep hills, uh, soldiers having to fight their way forward. And we're seeing progress. The American forces are getting better. And some of this is patent and some of this is just 
you're in combat long enough, you kind of, if you survive long enough, you tend to start doing better, right? Well, I think that our training was, I mean, our training had definitely improved a lot in the last couple of years. And that training is, I feel like we are traditionally good at training, at least from this point on, but you need to be in that environment to apply it. And once you apply it, I feel like that makes them, I mean, they're going to get better faster because they know they have the training, right? Um, to a degree. Um, there's a great line in here where, uh, where Eisenhower has, uh, is corresponding with any number of his uh, subordinates. Mm-hmm. And he talks about uh, the, an air defense unit where, they, uh, where they're watching a new unit come into the line. And these guys have been in the, and the air defense unit, the guy that's corresponding with him has been in the line for a bit. And they see these new guys come in and they go to places where they shouldn't be going and they run into a minefield and they lose a couple trucks and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And so the training is getting better and that's a whole, that's a, that's a great conversation. I'm, I, I did, a, I've done a lot of research on the uh, training that we're doing back in the States. And I think Dr. Michael Calhoun mentioned that the tr- our field armies that are responsible for validating training and our core commanders who are spawn, who are training up units are being sent to Tunisia to watch these lessons go. And Eisenhower is huge on this. He's talking about rotating officers back from the front in Tunisia to bring these lessons back. And Eisenhower spends a whole, if you go through his uh, correspondence, there's this huge piece talking about getting the officers back into the fight and how fast we're learning. And one of the things he's kind of doing to kind of buck up his own soldiers a little bit, he goes, yeah, okay, you're having problems. Yeah, they're, they're challenges. But look at the Brits there, you know, two years ago when the Brits were having their baptism of fire, they were having just the same amount of problems you had. And you're getting better faster. The Brits might argue with us with that point. They might have some fair points in there. But uh, by the same token, Eisenhower, remember what Eisenhower was trying to do. He's got some soldiers who are in a very tough situation. And this isn't the time to give them the nuanced argument, right? This is the, hey, guys, you're doing okay. You stay in this fight. So we're getting better, slowly but surely. Now, there's a problem. uh, There's there's another story we have to tell here during this time frame. So as we're attacking on the stem of the L, so that 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 north-south line in western Tunisia, the British Ninth Corps has been moved into the line. It's more British forces. The U.S. 34th Infantry Division, which is a National Guard division, is committed to kind of give them some additional combat power there. And they're attacking into, again, if you've looked at a map of Tunisia, we're talking very rugged mountains, steep slopes, narrow valleys. You know, I'm a tanker, so I would classify everything as tank country or not tank country. Mm -hmm. This is not tank country. And infantrymen don't like it either. Because, you know, no one likes to climb up hills, particularly when somebody's shooting at you. So this is very tough fighting. And the 34th Infantry Division doesn't exactly acquit it, cover itself in glory, shall we say. Now, there's a number of factors going on. They're new troops, so they're learning on the go. It's a tough battle. And you kind of have to balance out of, okay, they're new, so they're, 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 they're struggling. But it's also a tough battle. Seasoned veteran troops would also struggle in this scenario as well. And so there's that kind of give or take you have to do that do there as well. And the 34th Infantry Division will also argue that they weren't supported as well as they could have been by the by the British Ninth Corps. British Ninth Corps kind of pushes back against that. So there's a little bit of give and take there. 
Truth is probably somewhere in the middle, right? So again, this goes back to the British are, uh, are kind of looking down on the American forces, at least to a degree. And this is where Eisenhower spends a lot of his time is in adjudicating these food fights, so to speak. Relationship management. Yeah, and it is huge at this level. This is really what Eisenhower is known for, really, throughout his entire career. Eisenhower's never really been a tactical commander. I challenge you to find Eisenhower's tactical acumen. It doesn't show up, but it doesn't matter. Eisenhower's skill is making everybody go in the same direction at the same time. And if you don't think that that's a useful skill... Uh, I, I challenge you to put Patton in that position. You know, he would have blown up relationships all over the place, probably. <laughs> yeah. So Eisenhower is trying to manage these things, and it's happening on both fronts. Like, uh, there's a, a British air commander who, when, uh, you know, that, that great scene from the movie Patton where the bombers come in and bomb them when they're talking about air superiority. And a British air commander basically makes a comment along the lines of the Americans are complaining about air support because they're bad soldiers and they need this. And this, of course, gets out. And Eisenhower is frustrated and angry not only at the general, he's also angry at the press censor who didn't catch that comment. This is, of course, a different America where we are censoring news (laughs) reports coming back from the front. And his correspondence is filled. First off, he kicks a guy out of theater. He kicks a reporter out of theater for doing that. He then calls up the Brits and goes, guys, you need to apologize. And, the, and the, to his credit, that British officer does. Then the next thing is, is that you've got Patton saying, I want more. I want this guy's head. I want him fired. And Eisenhower then has to come in and go, no, look, stop. <laughs> this guy's a good dude. He made a, he made a wrong comment. But if we take this too far, then we're going to we're going to make the relationship toxic. Everyone just needs to calm down. He apologized. We're going to let it go. And I don't write much on Eisenhower, but this is like where I like I like Ike. Right? You know, this is uh, where his uh, this is where his uh, acumen really comes in is making you know kind of smoothing a relationship over here, goosing another guy over there. That's what Eisenhower's uh, true genius is. But now he's got a problem. If you go back to that geometry, you got the 8th Army coming up from the south, and you got the British 1st Army that's really been given the main effort to kind of push in from the west. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to pinch out the U.S. 2nd Corps down here uh, just south of the 1st Army. 8th Army is going to come past them, the 1st Army is going to come past them. Politically, he can't let that happen. Remember, the American public is watching this in, with great interest. We want to see our boys do well. The Brits even kind of get it that we're okay, we've only got a core here and they've got, what is it, five cores by this point. Okay, they have the preponderance of forces in this theater, but they're at their max org right now. They have, they're, they're pretty much fully in the fight. They know that we have not yet begun to fight, uh, to, to misuse the quote. But if the U.S. Second Corps is pinched out of the kind of the end game of this campaign, it's going to look bad for everyone concerned. You have to think about this politically. The American public is being asked to do quite a bit, whether our democracy, we're mobilizing all these people. If it looks like our soldiers were basically there for the hard part and then pushed to the side for the for the end game, that's going to play well politically. And you have to take that into consideration. You know, what's all that war bonds money going to? Exactly. And uh, this is the relationship between war and politics and uh, not just, you know, in like to 
use the German, you know, policy, but it's also politics too. Mm -hmm. You can use those almost interchangeably in this particular case. So Eisenhower calls up Alexander and goes, I can't allow this to happen. So Alexander and Eisenhower get together and depending on who you read, Eisenhower either orders Alexander to, or they come to a mutual agreement. Depending on what source you read, you can get both answers. And so they take the entire U.S. Second Corps, which is four divisions. So you've got the 1st Infantry, the 9th Infantry, the 34th Infantry, and the 1st Armored Division. Mm -hmm. And they are all going to move from kind of the center of the Allied line up to the northern end of the line. Basically from the coast down a little bit. And that's for the final offensive. There's not really a good military reason to do that. Got British forces up there. They're more than capable. But we can't not have the Americans there. So perhaps a strictly tactical reason there doesn't make a lot of sense. But from a larger strategic reason, it does. There's another reason they were pointing out. The American forces are getting better. But they need more seizing. Remember, the Brits have been fighting since 1939. Right. They've had lots of combat experience. The U.S., right now, we have... These four divisions in the line. We have a couple more divisions back in northern uh, in Morocco. You got the second armored division hanging out back there. We can't logistically support two armored divisions forward, so you've only got the first armored division there. We've been at war over a year at this point, but we have only been there for a couple of months. Exactly, and you can train and you can train and you can train. It doesn't beat true combat experience. So the more seasoning we can give our soldiers, the better off we're going to be because Eisenhower is basically using these four divisions and he's going to start pulling officers from them to send them back. Incidentally, that's what happened to Friedendahl. Friedendahl is pulled from his command of second corps and he's actually promoted. He's actually sent back to the U.S. and given command of the U.S. second army, kind of kicked upstairs. Um, yeah. <laughs> because what he's, he couldn't build a good team and fight in combat, but what he could do is be a training army commander. And so that's what Friedendahl is sent off to go do, kind of get out of there. Orlando Ward of the uh, First Armored Division. Mm -hmm. Eisenhower and Patton looked at him, and that was a really hard decision for them because he was a good officer in many respects. But the, his division had taken too many hits, and they judged him to be not the right personality to kind of get the division back on its feet. Mm -hmm. It's one of those cases where when you've had a, it's like, you know, when a, when a team, when like when a football team's had a bad couple seasons, even though the coach is a perfectly good coach, you're going to remove the coach simply to kind of put a new, a new face on it. Right. Yeah. So he is pulled off and he is sent back to the States to train. Now he's going to show back up in uh, Northwest Europe in command of, I want to say the 20th armored division. And it does reasonably well for itself. Showing that in the U.S. Army in World War II, when we fired guys, we didn't necessarily end their careers. We would often send them off and do other things. And that's actually an important point that they were doing is this personnel management of, hey, look, you had a bad situation. It didn't work very well. We're going to pull you out of that situation. We're going to put someone new in the situation, kind of a fresh set of eyes. But you're not done. We're going to send you back and keep using you. This is personnel management because even though it's the biggest army the U.S. has ever had, you can't waste talent. Right. So if somebody wasn't doing really great in that situation, but you know they still have use, you're going to keep using them. So that's kind of what they are ending up doing with uh, with Ward and also with Friedendahl. You don't think about it, but they're you know because Friedendahl kind of falls off the radar after you know Happy Valley and uh, or you no know, Speedy Valley. There you go. 
and uh, and all those in all those cases where he just kind of goes off, just disappears, but he's actually gone off to do something useful. So we end up with this line where now the U.S. Second Corps is up on the north, British First Army, British Eighth Army. And the final offensive kicks off. And bear in mind that this has now gone on. This is kind of like the middle of April. Mm -hmm. And Patton is then pulled from the Second Corps. And the reason why Eisenhower pulls Patton is, is that Eisenhower is already thinking about the next objective. They've already decided that they're going to do Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. Patton had been designated as the American commander for that operation. So he's sitting there. uh, So Eisenhower needs Patton kind of back helping with the planning process there. Yeah, go get ready for this next thing. Yeah, that is a higher headquarters job is you have subordinate headquarters to worry about the here and the now, the what's in front of you. Yeah. The higher headquarters job is to think two and three steps down, you know, and it's like in chess. You're thinking two or three moves ahead and you got to set up the board to do that. In fact, Eisenhower is getting a little bit worried because Tunisia is taking so long that it's kind of cutting into their planning for Sicily because they want a specific moon phase. They want the tides. All of these things come into play and there's only certain days when that happens. So Eisenhower's looking at his watch going, we need to get this over with so that we can get on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So there's another reason too why you put Bradley in charge of the Second Corps. How many American officers have commanded a corps in combat in the Atlantic theater? The answer right now is two. You have Patton and Friedendahl. Well, Friedendahl is no longer useful as a combat commander in that theater, so he has to go away. So you have Patton. Well, that's not very useful if I'm trying to grow an army. So I've got to put, so uh, Bradley, he's got designs on Bradley. He knows that Bradley has kind of shown aptitude. So he's going to put Bradley into that role to kind of test him out, see what he's got. Bear in mind that Bradley is going to go from command of the Second Corps in North Africa and then into Sicily to command of the U.S. First Army in the invasion of Normandy to, by uh, the breakout, he's going to command the 12th Army Group. So you go from a corps to an army group command. And what Eisenhower is doing is, is that his circle is very, very small. Once he finds someone that he trusts, He's going to keep going back to that well. And you're going to see this repeatedly where some of the same names are going to keep popping up. Incidentally, and we can talk about this more in a minute, is the staff of the Second Corps, many of them follow Bradley from the Second Corps to the U.S. First Army to the 12th Army Group. That's important here, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So the Second Corps is up there, and then this is a bloody, brutal fight. It takes them really from the end of April through the middle of May to finally kind of put the end story on this. And this is a hard fight. This is not just, oh, the Germans gave up. This is a brutal, deliberate battle that takes them until about the 13th of May to wrap up. And now they're ready to move on to the next phase. So what's kind of the big upshot of all of this, right, is we talk about Castrian Pass and we talk about, and that is the name that people think about of Tunisia, right? Yeah. This defeat. But it's all the stuff that happened kind of a little bit before and afterwards that shows the U.S. Army maturing and evolving. You take these four divisions and a core headquarters. Never, ever, ever forget the headquarters because the headquarters is learning too. Right. So you have all these staff officers learning and developing alongside the combat soldiers. They're building all these relationships. Incidentally, they're also building a lot of the 
personality conflicts that are going to kind of plague the Anglo-American alliance throughout. Remember, these are the same dudes that have been told by the Brits, you're not very good and we don't trust you very much. That same officer is now going to be a staff officer in the U.S. First Army in Normandy and possibly the 12th Army Group into eastern France and into the, uh, the rest of the war. They're not going to forget. And also, by the way, it's the same British officers, too, because, you know, the, these folks all kind of come up together. Yeah. Uh, so what you're going to see is these tensions continue throughout. And uh, if you can imagine working with someone for three years in a high stress environment, and when you started out working with them, you were kind of the new guy or the new gal, and you weren't you weren't really sure what was going on. Your first couple of days on the job, you really kind of didn't do really well, and people kind of laughed at you. If you can think about that, and then they held it against you during that time frame, but then you have to work with that person continually in a high stress pressure cooker environment for the next three years. Yeah, it's also unfair. Like the soldiers, right? The soldiers in Tunisia, they should not have received as much blame from the British because it was definitely. I mean, if you look at the decisions that leadership made, I mean. You can definitely put a lot of the blame there. Right. And of course, but you also, but then you can flip this around too and say, well, the Brits are exasperated because they've got this new ally that's trying to throw its weight around in terms of decision-making. It's what we do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what we do, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but we have this new ally trying to throw its weight around and it's going, guy, sit down, listen, learn. We've been doing this for you know, by this is 43. So this is their fourth year of war by this particular stage in the game. Yeah. And so they're exasperated with us. And this is one of those things that makes it interesting, right? Is, is that too often a lot of historians will take one side of the argument. You know, it's the Americans against the haughty Brits who are arrogant and, you know, kind of always trying to put us in our place. Alternatively, a lot of other historians will take the Oh, the battle-wise, experienced Brits having to, having to deal with these arrogant, inexperienced, rookie Americans who are, are just going to run and get themselves into lots of trouble. Mm -hmm. What to me is the more interesting thing is looking at both sides and understanding, wow, both sides have reason for the things that they do. And the, and the interesting thing is how do you then make those two sides work together in a team? Because we talk about it all the time in the Army, but sometimes we don't always practice it, which is this is a team sport. Yeah. And so that's the fascinating part. So, so Dr. Calhoun and I are both working on Simpson. And uh, whenever his book comes out, it's going to be, I would think, to be the definitive biography on it. I'm doing something a little bit differently. I'm looking at, uh, at other aspects. Mm -hmm. But you have these leaders that are able to transcend those uh, tensions. And that is, that's a rare find because it's human nature, right? It's human nature that uh, is, a, is really going to uh, come to play. So this is really where I, I'm fascinated here. And this is kind of, so we talked about it's the crucible of the Anglo-American and the French alliance mm -hmm. in the good and the bad. So all of those tensions start here. Not all of them. Some of them came from previous. But a lot of those prejudices on both sides start there and then it keeps building over years and years and years. And I, again, I hearken back to think about those co-workers that you have. Very capable, very good co-workers, but they might have some prejudice against you 
maybe rightfully so, from your first days on the job. And they've got those prejudices that they have to work through. And you have your own prejudices because of how your frustration wasn't at being handled that way at the very beginning. So I, I kind of like how it's all put together there. But also it's to point out that it's not just the headlines, right? Yeah. It's we talk about the headlines because it's cool and it sticks in your mind and all that kind of stuff. But it's all the stuff that comes around it that really makes the fight happen. We talk about, oh, well, there's no way we could have lost World War II. We had all the equipment. And then, of course, let's not forget the Soviets over on the eastern flank, right, that are doing from that are that are fighting the largest land war in the history of mankind. But. Yeah, except for the fact that yeah, an infantryman still has to go up that hill. Otherwise, you can have all the stuff in the world. It doesn't really matter. And so it's all those individual each battles that come through. And it's those grinding small fights that help us understand the true character and the true nature of the fight. So, um, but that's, but that's where I really, really enjoy this campaign is you see these units kind of start from nothing and they go into something. And then you also have the headquarters units, which are growing and learning at the same time too. The U.S. Second Corps is kind of the seed corn, if you will, of the U.S. for U.S. headquarters that will command throughout the rest of the war for good or for ill. And again, because those, those personalities and relationships matter. And what you see in particular is, is that as the war progresses, is that Bradley in particular, although Eisenhower as well, as I mentioned before, they kind of have their circle of trust. You look at the people that are commanding in Northwest Europe in 1944 and 45, and there are very few people from the field army up that weren't in that kind of Mediterranean club to start with. And in fact, Devers, who's the commander of the 6th Army Group in Northwest Europe, is actually the commander of European forces in England, or American forces in England, during this time frame. And he is going to have a disagreement with Eisenhower over the use of bombers during this time frame. Eisenhower and Devers don't get along with each other too well during this time frame. And then when Eisenhower leaves the Mediterranean after Sicily to take the commander of Supreme Headquarters Ally, uh, you know, the Supreme Commander uh, of Shave, mm-hmm. Devers, who was sitting in that job, comes down to take the deputy theater commander job in the Mediterranean. And the reason being is, is that Eisenhower didn't really like working with Devers. So Devers goes to a different theater because the Mediterranean is a different theater than the Northwest Europe theater. And although we call it the European theater, Italy is also part of Europe, but we have to keep them separate. Right. And when they invade Southern Europe with the Sixth Army Group, what will become the Sixth Army Group? Mm-hmm. Devers is the logical choice. There's not a reason to not put him there. Is Eisenhower and Devers just and you see it through all of their work. They don't get along. And it uh, and sometimes they're professional enough to put it to the side, and sometimes they are not. There's this great line that I got from the Patton papers where uh, Patton is recounting the story that Eisenhower thinks that Devers is uh, 22 caliber, mm-hmm. which is kind of a weird insult, but whatever. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then of course, Patton being Patton sits there and goes, I agree, but some, uh, but, uh, just remember that some, uh, some others aren't much more than 38 caliber themselves. Uh, of course, Patton, of course, you know, 
casting aspersions at many, many folks along the way. Yeah. And so these, so these relationships and these tensions build throughout the war. And if you don't understand that kind of that beginning phase and Tunisia is kind of where a lot of this kicks off, it's harder to do later on. Those are excellent points. It's one of the things that I try to do, I know I could probably do it more with these series, is that I try to show military history. I love it, but it doesn't happen by itself. And it's not just dates and battles. You know, these are people and you need to consider the human factor and you need to tell the human stories. Yeah, because one of the things that I tell my students all the time is, you know, this is not a character in a book. This is not a, a person who has all the right information. And this is why I love teaching majors is many of them know what it's like to be cold, wet, hungry, mm-hmm. tired, scared, and have to make a decision. And if you're able to kind of break through the character in a book, character in a movie uh, approach and get them to see these generals as human beings and relate them to people that they know, two things happen. One, they gain greater insight into the actual historical event. And that's part of what we do is gain is so that they actually kind of learn something about the historical event and they and they get that part. And they can, oh, now I understand why this kind of went down as it did. But the other part, what I would argue is almost the more important part, is they gain greater insight into themselves. They under they go, oh, he was doing this problem and he had all these things and I and he reacted like this. And then they uh, they sometimes see themselves or people they've worked with reflected in the past because human nature doesn't really change all that terribly much. Right. And they and they start to learn something about themselves that then they can carry forward with them. And that's where they gain context and insight, not just into a historical event, but as I tell folks, I'm, look, I'm not teaching you how to invade Tunisia in 1943. Uh, hopefully we don't have to do that again. And if it is, it's probably not going to be against the Germans sporting you know, Panzer threes. Instead, it's, you never know. It could, it could happen. Possibly. <laughs> well, not probably though. Uh, and then, but the, uh, but the idea being is, is what insight and understanding do you gain into yourself that you can then carry forward with you? And that's one of the great things about teaching at places like the Command General Staff College is you get to lead them to those insights. And it's kind of cool seeing the light bulb go off. Yeah. Um, I like that you point out, it's not just the units and the soldiers, right? It's the staff that is also learning what they're doing and the um, and kind of getting comfortable in their roles. People don't talk about it yet. They're, and it, it, it's not exactly a riveting history, right? Right. But, you know, it's like filling out that staff report. It's the detail work that happens behind the scenes that really makes things work. You talk about World America, U.S. Army in World War II. We got lots of stuff, but it doesn't really matter if you can't put that stuff into use and organize it. And very basic stuff. How many trucks can fit on a road? How is the road being maintained? Yeah. Going into Northwest Europe, what happens when all the trucks are are coming up from their uh, contaminated areas and fields and it rained last night and they have mud on their tires? It's thousands of trucks going on this road and they've deposited mud all over. Somebody's got to clean that off. You know, somebody's got to do something, right? Uh, but the idea being is that that's the staff work that comes into play. The one does not simply move 13 to 15,000 soldiers and hundreds and thousands of vehicles without all that detailed planning and work that goes into it. And you can train it and you can train it, but at a certain point you have to actually do it. And this is where uh, Tunisia is really the, our first experience doing that. You could say torch and I wouldn't disagree too much, but uh, torch was kind of like a big learning event. It was big uh, and uh, lots of lots of interesting uh, opportunities to excel. 
uh, which in the military <laughs> means something different than most other folks, right? And then in Tunisia, we we suddenly have to put all of this together and fight a coherent core. And it's the first time we've really done that when the other side's shooting back. And soldiers care about, and it's like, it's all that other stuff. Like, where's your food coming from? Where's your ammunition coming from? Um, giving people orders and direction and all that kind of stuff. Tactical commanders can kind of figure out how to get up a hill, right? But where's my artillery coming from? Where's my artillery ammunition coming from? Artillery ammunition, that's a whole different side of the hill of beans, right? It's big, it's bulky, uh, it takes a lot of stuff. Um, who's going to prioritize stuff? Am I going to get, am I going to, if I've only got 10 trucks, I'm going to use random numbers because history teacher and a math teacher, is um, if I've only got 10 trucks, what goes on that truck? Is it artillery ammunition? Is it small arms ammunition? Is it food? Is it barrier material because they say that they need to dig in? You have to think about all of these different bits and pieces. And once you get up into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, by the time we're done with Northwest Europe, millions, it's a huge moving piece with the literal millions of moving parts. And we are keeping track of every single one of those parts. As best as you can. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain level of accountability, though, I mean, because we have them, we've got records on everybody, so. Yeah, and you've got to work through this piece, and this is where all of this stuff is, so it's not just a baptism of fire for the American soldier, it's a baptism of fire for the American staff officer, too. And again, as I've pointed out, these are not these are the staff officers that will be disseminated throughout the force. Some of them will stay uh, stay on with 7th Army, some of them will go over to 5th Army, which is the army we put into Italy. Mm -hmm. Seventh Army does Sicily, and then it sits in North Africa until it's committed into uh, southern France. Fifth Army is Mark Clark's army, which is committed into Italy. So, so these guys from Second Corps kind of disperse throughout. I would say a critical mass kind of follow Bradley around, um, but not all. And also their lessons are carried forward because, uh, as I often tell people, live vicariously whenever you can, right? And so all of this stuff is coming out and we're taking these massive reams of data out of North Africa. We talked about the era, about the era assets earlier, right? We're going to take that and we're going to refine it to the point where not only in Northwest Europe are we going to have aircraft, you know, every field army is going to have its own tactical air command. You're also going to put pilots in tanks with radios that can talk back there because a pilot on the ground knows what a pilot in the air needs to hear to talk him onto the target. The world looks very different from, say, a couple thousand feet and a couple hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And they know what that pilot needs to hear to get them onto a target. And all of this comes from discussions when we sit there and go, hey, look, the first aerial dome didn't work very well, so we're going to do this. But we still need air support, but you've got this ground pounder sitting there trying to talk to a pilot, and the pilot's going, dude, I that rock right in front of me. And it's like, dude, I'm going a couple hundred miles an hour. I am not seeing what you're seeing. <laughs> so all of this develops over time, and it's kind of the school of hard knocks, right? And uh, and some of it comes out through training and experimentation, but some of it is just got to do it and realize, well, that, that kind of... It didn't work very well, so why don't I do it better? I think it's it, this is such an important part of our history. Um, I I know a lot of people enjoy studying World War II, but I think that um, taking that 
army and combined arms perspective and all the learning and changes that we did at this time, I feel like this is a really good point to look at to kind of understand the changes that have happened in the last 80 years and what we do now. It's just, I don't know, I, I feel like it's a shame when people don't see that. Yeah, it's hard to kind of, because again, a lot of it's not interesting or exciting sometimes, right? Like, I wrote multiple threads on industrial mobilization, Bill. So yeah, it's not all interesting. <laughs> but that's actually, yeah, I, I, I wrote a paper too on that back in grad school. And yeah, it's uh, sometimes you want to gouge your eyes out with a spoon. It's a little dry. Just a little bit. Um, <laughs> but by the same token, that's the detail work. And that's the, the mark of the, the professional, right? Is not just look at the big, cool things. It's looking at everything, that, that kind of penumbra of stuff around it that got you where you are because it's it's the buildup of small things uh what i've found is is that typically the units that do the that are that kind of are able to do the routine stuff routinely and you're not jumping uh through hoops on just standard routine stuff mm-hmm. those are the units that typically do better because it's not because you know another unit's bad or something like that but if you're focused so heavily on just the routine stuff. You never get to the complex stuff. You just kind of, kind of have to handle the, you know, just oh, okay, we're we're handling mail. And if you uh, if you don't think mail is important, wait till you've been a month or two without it. No, mail is mail is extremely important, and it's definitely something I'm still looking to see if I can find someone that can talk about mail during this time period. Yeah, well, uh, and the the postal battalions and the, the, all of these different bits and pieces that are out there and what uh, in in my research what i found is is that soldiers like working in armies and in organizations where the it, not everything's a crisis in, a, in an emergency it's oh we're doing this rock on we got it and just you're able to kind of focus on the important things because the standard routine things are just being handled yeah but that's the epitome of staff work. You know, uh, I always joke, you know, that uh, staff work, you know, nobody notices you unless you fail. And then, and then they notice you quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. These are the forces that will be go- some of the forces. There will be new forces added. The forces that learn in Sicily, these four divisions that we kind of talked about, there were other divisions, but these are kind of the, the hard knock mm-hmm. So the hard knock uh, soldiers of the of the of, of the Tunisian campaign, the first, the ninth, the thirty fourth, and the first armored. These divisions go off and have storied careers throughout. I mean, the first infantry division goes and fights in Sicily, um, and then it's also one of the it's also the assault division for uh, Omaha Beach, and that is ch- it's chosen. Now, the first, soldiers of the first infantry are not really happy to be um, so honored. <laughs> It's an honor. Uh, no, no, thanks. But uh, when we're putting the divisions ashore on Omaha Beach and in the Normandy campaign in particular, they're, they're chosen very specifically, which is the 4th Infantry Division and uh, the 29th Infantry Division in particular. They're green divisions, not divisions that have not seen combat. And that's actually a deliberate choice because veterans know what's coming and they might not move as fast. So you kind of want those rookies to just kind of charge charge into in, into the into the fight, but they realize, well, that's great, but you also need some seasoning and some experience to handle things if, if things go awry. So 
charging is great, but you need them to know what to do when they get there. <laughs> yes. Now, hopefully some training's done that, but, uh, but that's also what, but that's why the 1st Infantry Division is landed alongside the 29th Infantry mm-hmm. at Omaha Beach. And they both, and, they, and you kind of see kind of the young, inexperienced, enthusiastic, and kind of the, the older, more mature side of the fight. But that division is chosen very explicitly. And they're pulled out of the Mediterranean theater to go do this operation. The 34th Infantry Division is going to go on to a story career. The 1st Armored Division fights all the way up through, uh, fights in uh, Sicily, fights in Italy. And it's going to do very well for itself. The 2nd Armored Division is going to, uh, which is the other armored division in North Africa, which no one talks about because they don't really do much uh, in North Africa. Yeah, I was going to say, are they doing anything at this point? Um, Their equipment and people are going forward to keep the 1st Armored Division in the fight. Okay. That is what the 2nd Armored Division is doing. Incidentally, the 2nd and the 3rd Armored Divisions will be the last remaining heavy divisions that we come out of this. Because that's another lesson we learn out of Tunisia, is we learn that our stock armored divisions, which are two regiments of tanks and a regiment of armored infantry and three battalions of artillery, are too unwieldy to fight. It's just, it's too, uh, the supply trains for that, for that amount of uh, forces is more challenging than we can uh, pull off. So what we do is we, we cut out a regiment of tanks and we actually get rid of the regimental structure entirely. And it's just an administrative headquarters at that point. And we've always had the combat commands. But now it's three battalions of tanks, three battalions of armored infantry, three battalions of artillery. And of course, one cannot forget, because I'm a cavalryman, the divisional cavalry reconnaissance squadron that's there. And those are what's called the light divisions. But we keep the second and third armored divisions there mainly because there's some internal politics. And then uh, there's lots of reasons that go into it. But the second and third don't ever modify, whereas everyone else does. And that actually makes it a lot easier. You would argue, well, why wouldn't I want as big as a big of an army as po- big of a division as possible? But there comes a point where it's too big. And that's what they encounter in Tunisia is if you're trying to supply people and there's only so many roads, at a certain point, all you have is more mouths to feed or more tanks to fuel. And mass is important, but you need, you have to be able to do something with that mass. Going back to our conversation about staff work. Tunisia is a great campaign that doesn't get studied enough. It is hard, brutal infantry fighting mixed in with some armor fighting as well. And it's really where the U.S. Army in the Atlantic, uh, I'm including both the Mediterranean and the European theater of operations there, start coming of age. We've got that training and we're able to pull that forward. But if we don't have Tunisia, if we don't have kind of that proving ground, a lot of the things that we do later on we're going to have to learn someplace else. And so Sicily will be harder. Italy will be harder. Northwest Europe will be harder. And so that's really where you see these uh, forces kind of come kind of come to the fore. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to cover this really important history with me. This is stuff that we don't, we don't learn this in school. And we don't, unless we go out of our way to study it, we don't ever really know, you know, this level of detail. And I feel like it's important to this story. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. 
Just a reminder that any views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect any official stances of the U.S. Army, the Combined Arms Center, the Center of Military History, CGFC, the DOD, or any other organization associated with me, my guests, or this series. Be sure to check out the Why We Fight 1943 series content on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as this podcast, all of which will run throughout this year. Until next time, MOT out. Thank you.